Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today along with our foodie navigator James Winter. Hi! And on today's show we are opening the doors on a brand new venture to try and put together the Chef Hall of Fame, exploring the greatest chefs from the past centuries and inducting some of them, maybe, into our soon-to-be hallowed halls. So without further ado, let's take a journey to meet the greatest chefs of all time. Hello, James. How are you? You're not looking Oh, well. Jay, I've got a croaky voice and a, and a head full of cold, but I'm all right. And I've also just come back from France to see the uh, um, man that is Heston for a few days. <laughs> so uh, I have, I've literally, I've been in the aeroplane with the cold, so literally my head is like a, a swollen balloon, but I'm all right. Are you and sure I this sound- is not just a massive hangover from hanging out with Heston, or is this actually a cold? Uh, probably there's a mixed mix in there. But <laughs> Wine I think tasting. There's definitely a cold as well. <laughs> oh, pushing through the cold barrier. Well, I'm sorry. Keep going. Yeah, it's no, the joy it's of travel, isn't it? So yeah, no, so, yeah, we would. We just before we started recording, we were discussing the kind of hall of fame, weren't we? In, in terms of what it should be, and 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 I don't know. Let's put it out there to the listeners too, because I think. I'm almost tempted to just say, look, we're just going to throw suggestions up to see if we can spark some things that come back. We always love it when people come in to us with suggestions of people. And I suppose what my vision, or when we talked about it, was was that, you know, yes, there are some globally, historically well-known chefs, but actually there are many, many brilliant chefs that pop up in the the great sort of chronicles of gastronomy. And, you know, it's, it's quite a nice opportunity to pick out one or two that don't always get the... You know the, the, the headlines. You know the, from let's you know Escoffier and Carême, and you know we're going to talk about them a lot. And you know as as people come in and talk about the, the sort of birthplace and journey of of recipes and culinary greatness over the head centuries. But you know there's one or two others out there that have done some remarkably good things, um, which might be you know this might just be the opportunity to to celebrate one or two of those. Okay, so that's interesting. So our Hall of Fame is, I mean, obviously we're going to say this is the world's first chef hall of fame i'm sure there's many out there but we're taking full credit for this um but the idea of this then is this is not this is some of the greatest chefs of all time but potentially food heroes across the spectrum and across the centuries that like you said some will be shoe-ins that everyone's heard of but this is more the guys you might not have heard of maybe in the lower leagues or one of those strikers who yeah, played a couple just of not years all the time i think that's the thing i think oh, I'd, I'd like to think all of the people we suggest have done something you know, worth remembering right they've made their mark in the sand in some way shape or form but it it doesn't have to be as obvious as, as some of the ones we're already aware of um but it could be that's know, nice you know. so they've changed the world they've changed the way that we without probably realizing look at food but mm. we don't necessarily know who they are or we don't yeah necessarily and, and also them. we may well it be you know dining on on a reverberation let's say through time and history of something that they created you know it's kind of or we've kind of half heard of their world but never really understood where it came from because it was a long way away and and many years ago so you know maybe just shine a light on, on one or two of those characters and what's our hall actually look like when we induct oh, them into it? What a, what a <laughs> chef like hall of fame look like. Have a great dinner party. <laughs> well, I've only seen one great hall, really, I think, and that's the one at Hampton Court. So I always see that with a big wooden oak panel oh, yeah. you know, walls with, with what the, the bits they stick on the wall with Henry's initials on, which he had, he had um, what's her name, the first queen, which one was first, Catherine? We'll no, go he had with that. yes. He, but he, whenever he, had, he, whenever he got married again, he'd remove all the 
bosses, what they call, but all went from a previous wife. Oh, I remember yeah. that from the, from the talk, from the guided talk I went on, apart from one, the guys missed one. So there's one with uh, Henry and Anne. Um, oh, fantastic. In the corner, but they thought they'd removed, but it's still there. Oh, <laughs> so, so, we could have, so our guys could each have a, a, a tapestry. So in our Hampton Court Hall, oh, there's yeah. a tapestry of each of the great chefs who make it in. And there's the tapestry is the stories you're going to tell us about about their lives and we're oh, that'd uh, be wonderful yeah it's a mean, lovely idea Jane. Yeah. yes obviously like entirely we, imaginary we, but well, we have a wonderful kind of uh sort of chef's table at dinner uh, by Heston in, in the mandarin that's got this kind of i suppose it's not quite a tapestry but it's a canvas that's been drawn by the brilliant artist dave mckean but is is sort of inspired by the tapestries of old but tells the story of, of Heston and the journey through history to discover dishes and some of the things that you're going to enjoy on the menu and it's just wonderful I love those things because they're so they can be really playful tapestry work it's an, it's a lot less formal than some painting I find really sometimes no one's ever said that about tapestries oh, oh have playful. you not been to the Vatican Museum my friend I've well, been to the Vatican but I didn't notice the playfulness oh, of the tapestries the tapestry room with the, with the little dancing characters everywhere and, and you know no. the colourful flat no oh, I remember well, the 3D maybe that was just me imagining really? some yeah. <laughs> and they were very boring sort of religious I wonder if one of our listeners is a tapestry maker, sewer. Are you a make? Do you make or sew them or weave them? Tapestry weaver sounds about right. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I think we might have to. Yeah, when we finally get the uh, journey to the centre field HQ, maybe this is one of the off the off wings from it. We have a a what journey to the centre of tapestry. We can start selling these, can't we? It's well, the, when we uh, know in that, when we Karen know, actually, tapestry. that's not the prerequisite, is it? Knowing anything, we could just start that tomorrow. <laughs> we'll start making some stuff up about tapestry and see if anyone corrects us. And when we were chatting before, obviously in my, my, my way, I was willing to steam in and say, right, we're going to announce who's in the hall. But you wisely said, well, probably shouldn't be us making these announcements. What we can do or what you can do is you can suggest them. And, and I think possibly the way we'll do it is over the coming weeks... Uh, will return to this Hall of Fame and you can suggest a different chef each week and then we can put some of them up for consideration much like in the pro sports world when you have to sort of vote for who you think should be in the Hall of Fame and then one or two or three of them can go in we could ask our guests who know a lot more than us about it or we obviously our listeners can all chip in and tell us who they think should be in Um, and then we'll end up with some rogues gallery yeah and some can be current but not too current I don't think we're not we're not looking for the hottest chefs you know what they they do hot 25 hot chefs no otherwise I'm going to invoke the power of veto yeah it's kind of I mean, you know, the ones that are doing something crazy on the plate. You know, I just, I'm not sure I, I, we're ready for that yet. But, no, uh, they've got to work for. They've got to work to get in here. I think, as, as we've discussed before, uh, actually, as a chef, to be able to do something that genuinely makes you stand out from other chefs and breaks new ground is is one thing. But the truest sense of that, a little bit like sports people as well, is does it stand the test of time? Will people still be talking about what you did? 50 100 years from now and what we're trying to do is take that perspective where we look back and go actually yes these guys really did make waypoints in the in the in the sort of lineage of cooking Mm. and it's worth celebrating so i think anyone in the in the modern world who's actually still chopping onions probably doesn't pass that test anyway and if they want to get in they're just going to have to bribe us with a lot of food that's the only way yeah, because we're entirely corruptible. I mean, this is, Absolutely. This is like the Academy this is Awards. Just, let's let's make that clear to any uh, marketing, <laughs> promotional people who happen to be listening, thinking, how can I get my brand new product to a wider audience? We're available. We're available. James is willing to take a slap we will talk from anyone about it on the for stage. As that... many minutes as is necessary. 
<laughs> Entirely corruptible. So, okay, so imagine in our grand hall, the door is creaking open and you are at the lectern and you're going to tell oh, us who's, who's the... That's a bit of a too big a build-up, isn't it? Um, who, so who's the first person that you want to tell us about who you think should oh, be okay. up for consideration? Well, this character is is you know we we talk a lot about french chefs and this man is in fact french so that that's uh, that's no difference there but we talk a lot about sort of france and and european palaces and 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 whatnot for the sort of beginnings of gastronomy but this guy uh, is is a is a chef by the name of charles ranhofer now Charles, Charles Charles Ranhofer. Charles Ranhofer. What great Ranhofer surname Ranhofer. that is. Ranhofer. Yeah, and, Ran- and honestly, I can't tell you much more about the sort of beginnings of his family life, but I knew he, he grew up in Saint-Denis in, in France and was born in about 1836 or something. So what's that? 107... Tommy, what's it? Hundred and oh, I can't work it out. It's a long time ago. <laughs> My brain's gone. It's full of cold. Um, but he made his name over the other side of the Atlantic in New York. So his journey is really interesting because oh, wow. a lot of chefs are sort of were thrown out into the world from France in that period of, of French history because it was a pretty turbulent place. But, you know, they'd be cooking for kings and, and sort of, you know, uh, revolutionaries, you know, week by week. So, you know, it was quite unstable who their employer was going to be. So some of them just legged it and went to a much stabler place. And, and Charles Randolph ended up in, God, I think, New York, I think. I'm not sure quite when he arrived there but his kind of journey um did you say he was born in the 1830s 1836 and he kind of trained in paris um and he studied pastry as as a lot of people were, were sort of directed towards as a career if you wanted to to to, to be in the chefing world um so and 1850s working... 1860s america in new york what would 1860s new york be well, that would be Victorian New York. That would be quite exciting. I mean, it wasn't much of a. I don't. Yeah, exactly. It was. It was. It was quite a new. I don't. You know, newish place, right? I mean, you know, America is a new country. You know, so New York is is gro- growing and and sort of. I suppose you know, money is being made. Things are being built. Buildings, buildings would be are being thrown taller. up, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Yeah, there'd be money and washing so somewhere, into it. Especially around the kind of. Um, Wall Street, let's call it, downtown area, you know, of New York, where the financiers are, are sort of setting up stall and the stock market's starting to appear and, and all those kind of things. Because, you know, in the beginning of all these things of Wall Street and, and the Dow Jones index, these were just people, right? You know, Dow and Jones were two people who used to count up the number of trades that were made at the market every day and, and keep a book of it. Never, you know? is that true? Yeah. That's fabulous. I, so. I made that up, I don't think. But anyway, it's all... Who was NASDAQ then? He was a... <laughs> well, I think that's an abbreviation of some, of right. some American, something about a stock market exchange. Uh, but in the beginning, it was literally like a book of trades and it grew and more more commodities were put on it. And, and obviously money was, was, you know, being made in, in quite vast and very quick quantities. So, you know, these guys wanted to eat well and go out to fancy restaurants so they started to appear but you know the first um, nightclubs this is this is frantic googling but the first nightclubs appeared in new york in the 1840s and 1850s including mcglory's and haymarket and it enjoyed a national reputation for for live music and you can see everything's relatively low rise i mean you're talking three or four you know those cool buildings you see in new york where they're sort of at a junction and they seem seem to be almost a like a, a strange slice of cake building those, mm. those ones is what mm. is what the place looks like, and obviously lots of lots of sailing ships. Uh, well, there must have been a lot of immigrant people coming in from Europe too, with different kinds of skills and different. You know, Europe is a much older continent, right? So there were things and businesses that they might have run in wherever they'd come from. It would be France or or those Russia or Italy or Germany or wherever, and they would they would set them up in this brand new world. 
you know, the where skyscraper was... age began in the 68. Oh, it must have, it must mean, have been exciting so and cool. terrifying at the, the same yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so anyway, so young Charles Ranhuffer gets trained in, in Paris up to the age of about 12. And I think in about 1956, I read, um, I'm, you know, I haven't got his, his biography exactly nailed down, but I think in about 1856, then end of the 1850s, he, he moved to New York. Uh, why and who with, I really couldn't tell you, but he ended up there probably was, well, maybe with his family, maybe not. He's, he's 20 years old by then. So, you know, he might have set off uh, to, to make his name for himself in the world of cooking. And he, he, he you know, he managed to get um, various jobs. Uh, he'd worked at some notable places in, uh, in, in, in sort of in France over in between and, and cooked for, for um, Napoleon III and some of the sort of princes and whatnot. So he was, a, he was making his name as a kind of royal palace uh, chef. Uh, but landed in New York in sort of, as I said, in sort of the 1850 turn to 1860 and ended up uh, in a couple of different places, but really made his home in a restaurant, which for me has a kind of, it's such an iconic name in New York and it's called Delmonico's. And Delmonico's was at that point, even then, sort of becoming the, the most exciting restaurant in, in New York. And it was opened, I think, originally in 1827. So around I've that heard same of time it. What is it? About. What, have you been there? I've only, you know, I went there on one trip to New York. It was shut on the day I was there because they didn't <laughs> open for lunch on a Tuesday or something, you know. But now it's, you see, this is the journey of it, you see. It, at one point, it was the biggest, most well known um, restaurant, I would say, probably across North America. At that point, as America was growing, it, its name was synonymous with fine dining and luxury and grandeur and all sorts of things. And obviously, um, Ranhofer. Um, his story is intertwined in that growth. But even when he joined, it was already a place that had, had sort of dined some of the, the nobility of, of Europe. When they came to New York to visit and do whatever they were doing, they would often have a grand dinner, you know, either in Delmonico's or hosted by Delmonico's at some other place. Oh, so I the, see the, where it is. It's that building. It's the John Wick building, I like to think of it as. The building... Um where the hotel is in John Wick, which is that mm. ama- another one of those amazing cake slice buildings. That's right. Yes, it is. It is in John Wick. That's right. Don Monaco, it is. I remember Whoa, now. Oh, yes. it looks amazing. But, but then, you know, that's, that's for one that remains today. At one point, I think there were 10 or 12 Delmonico's around America. So, oh, wow. You know, it doesn't seem huge by today's scalable McDonald's standards, but that's pretty big, you know, for 1860-something for or other. Yeah. Um, you know, so it was growing and growing, and it was making headline news of its, you know, ridiculously expensive meal and blah 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 and at the <laughs> point I think it that that area is not very far from Wall Street anyway so you know this is this is the place people would go when they had a good day in the office let's say you know and, and they would want to be treated like the, the kings and queens of Europe. Now I want to just pause here and have a little chat with you about something that I think we have all experienced certainly over the past few years but most of us in our work and lives generally and that's stress. We spend a lot of time you know being told about physical complaints and traits that we can deal with you know bad legs bad backs bad tummies but I don't think any of us really spend enough time talking about stress and I along with I'm sure all of you guys have certainly encountered this be it through the homeschooling the work or just the general grind of getting through life and it's something that really does build and build and gnaws away at you inside and sometimes feels like a thing you have to deal with on your own you don't have any help in this matter you just sort of have to get over it. Well, luckily, that's not the case, and one of our sponsors is here to help. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with a therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more 
it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can give it a go to see if online therapy can help lower your stress. Journey to the Centre of Food listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash journey. And it's a great opportunity for you to start tackling that stress and get rid of it. They will teach and help you work your way through it and give you lots of and give you lots of ideas and ways that you can hopefully get better from the stress that we are all dealing with. So take advantage of this great offer and go to betterhelp b e t t e r help h e l. So take advantage so take advantage of this great offer by going to betterhelp so that's b e t t e r h e l p com slash journey right let's step back into the hall of fame the delmonico brothers um uh, giovanni and pietro i think they were called and, and their nephew lorenzo who, who sort of ran the bar on the wine list obviously wanted a you know a fabulous chef to to push for for you know for sort of the level of what they were doing up a bit and and that's where charles ranhofer appeared so in i think it's 18 and oh, quickly looking through my notes, 1862. How did they poached him? Do you think they poached him or do you think he went there? Um, well, I think let's, um, I think he'd been around New York a little bit, is, is how I think. Um, I mean, his CV but sounds he, he, to the man of born, right? If he's been doing royalty in Paris, what better than go to a sort of awfully grand place in New York, which is once, hmm. you know, to deal with he'd royalty? Worked, he, he'd worked for the Russian consul, I think, in New York for a bit and sort of flitted backwards and forwards from France at the very end of 1850 uh, and, and sort of cooked for Napoleon III and, and various sort of um, other sort of notable people around Europe and had sort of popped backwards and forwards from New York to France, New York to France and Europe and whatever, over those sort of period of four or five years. So maybe they'd come across him at a at a dinner or they knew his name. And I imagine the world of that sort of level of, of sort of dining uh, might have been as small as it really is today too. And you know, so they might have come across him. So I don't, you know, I don't know how they identified him, but I, you know, it was obviously a coming together of, of of, I don't know, the stars. Because what happened at that point is that, you know, Delmonico's just took off, you know, in, in the sense that he was a real, you know, I say he must have, I don't know, I've never, you won't see any actual moving footage of this man, obviously, but he was clearly a very charismatic showman of a chef. I mean, he's one of those classic, if you Google him and look at his picture, he looks he's got fabulous, that lovely, great big um, handlebar moustache. And I think he was quite a big man. And you can just feel the kind of, you know, the, the, the power of that charismatic personality. He doesn't look like a chef, though. He's big and round with a sort of grey, well, obviously he didn't have grey hair all the time, but grey hair and big, big face and, and this fantastic, like you say, bushy moustache. He looks like a sort of mill owner or someone like, you know, who would be, you know what I mean? He's got that look about him. He, don't, he doesn't have that sort of eye of the tiger you'd expect from a chef. He's got a really sort of, you can imagine but, him being front of house, really holding court. Oh, I imagine he, that's what I'm, yeah, I imagine he would have been out in that dining room. You know, there are one, you know, you know we've talked about this before, but certain chefs like to stay in the kitchen. Other chefs, you know, like to wander the dining room. You know, if you if you go to the Ritz, which I'm sure you do often, uh, to <laughs> yeah, have every dinner day. or lunch in the, in the beautiful <laughs> dining room there, you know, you'll always see... Um, Oh God, God, my my cold adult brain has forgotten his name, so I'm going to pause for a minute, and it's going. Oh God, uh, who's head chef of the Ritz? The head chef of the Ritz, as a, as a, it's uh, Spencer uh, John Williams. No, it's John oh Williams. no, that was John Williams. Yeah. Oh, I've met him. John I Williams is with, I filmed with him yes. before. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so, he's great. so Picking up what I was saying, you might edit it, you might not. So if, if there's a bumbly bit, listeners, I do apologise. Um, but <laughs> basically, if you go and have lunch or dinner at the Ritz, you will see 
executive head chef, I think he was when I was there, so he might have been elevated because he's one of the great statesmen of, of British gastronomy, John Williams. Um, I'm sure he's OBE, MBE, CBE. MBE, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and he will be strolling through that dining room. And he is quite a largish man. I don't think he'd mind me saying, you know, rotund, but grand. And he will walk through that dining room in his pristine white chef jacket with the tallest chef's toque you will ever see, you know, a good couple of feet tall off his head and he will stroll to every table and he's got this very, very strong, I think he's from Sunderland or Middlesbrough, um, sort of um, northeastern accent and he will chat and every, every, you, you just can't help but feel that there is something, you know, it's, it's, it's a real spectacle, you know, as people are having crepes out of a table side or beef wellington carved for them or whatever, you know, it's a wonderful thing when the chef is out there just wandering around, you know, doing a couple of things, but really just having a little chat with everyone, asking them what, you know, what the day's been like or how business is going or whatever. You know, and I can imagine Charles Randhoffer being exactly you know, that, kind of, that kind of man. Now, I know what you're thinking as you're listening to this podcast. Jay, you do sound dapper. Well, that's because I am dapper, because I have had a personal shopper. Yes, the normally the reserve of the high and mighty who go into the fancy department stores. The idea of having a personal shopper has now arrived at our doorstep. Anyone can have a go at it because shopping for clothes can be a hassle. And you, because shopping for clothes can be a hassle, and I know that I wish I could send someone out to do the shopping for me. The good news is Stitch Fix is here to help. Stitch Fix is a service for both men and women and makes shopping for clothes easy. You get started by going to stitchfix.co.uk slash journey and you can set up a profile and they'll deliver five items of clothing chosen just for you in your taste, size and budget. And I know it well because I've done it myself and it is really cool. You go online, you tell them your styles, the clothes you do and don't like, the colours you want and the kind of areas of your wardrobe you want to add to. And then a couple of days later from your own personal stylist someone that says hello to you online it comes through the letterbox and you have a great selection of clothes and if you don't want them you send them back and you get a full refund and if you do want them well you didn't have to do any of the hassle to get them and if you do want them you've got some brand new wardrobe items at really good prices you normally have to pay a 10 pound styling charge but we have a special offer for you all you have to do is sign up and schedule your first delivery using stitchfix.co.uk slash journey and the styling charge for your first order will be waived, so you can try Stitch Fix's online styling service for free. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash journey to try the personal styling service for free. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash journey. And if you keep all five items, you'll also get 20% off. stitchfix.co.uk slash journey. Right, back into that Hall of Fame again. What really piques my excitement and interest in him is something... You know, which is it's probably a bit, um, it's kind of something we'd, we'd see today, but he had this knack or way or habit of, whatever you want to call it, he would create dishes and then name them after people that would visit the restaurant. Clever. Which seems at first like a really, you know, it could be clever marketing, but actually, you know, it, it was clever marketing, but, you know, and it could be a bit of, you know, whatever you call it, you know, um, pandering up to, to famous people but it's actually a really clever way to tie them to the story of your restaurant so he would create these very grand french style dishes and name them after people that had eaten in the room and he would obviously do that at some point on a special occasion and serve it to them and those dishes would remain on the menu and then 
we'll get to the last part of his career at the end, but, but they end up, you know, he's done a great big thousand recipe cookbook, Randhofer, at the end of his career. So a bit like a Escoffier and, and Karem, he's put his words, his recipes down in paper for other people to discover. So that's how his his learning stays you know, longer than, than his own lifetime. But he created sort of, I mean, these are going to sound ridiculous names because you might not know, you have to do a bit of Googling to find out who they all are. <laughs> I will certainly. There's, there's, um, I'll start with the, uh, well, well, I suppose one of the most well-known ones, certainly in America, is, is, a, is a dish called Lobster Newberg, yes, which was named, I believe, after a, uh, a wealthy sea captain called Ben Wenberg, who used to go to the restaurant, <laughs> yeah. but then had a falling out, and so never went back. But they liked the dish so much, they kept it on, but called it Newberg instead of Wenberg. Really? So, yes. <laughs> So that's the story I've read. So I, lo- I love the idea of that. But also he's got, he's like, obviously it's all lobster dishes, to be honest, a lot of them, because that's the kind of place he was. So you've got lobster Duke Alexis, named after the Grand Duke Alexis of Russia, later Alexander III. Oh, wow. Uh, you've got lobster Paul, so lobster Paul Burt. I mean, I, what Paul Burt, apparently, having Googled this just before speaking to you, was a French zoologist and physiolog- uh, physiologist and politician. Um Extraordinary. He must have been a very famous man to get a dish named after him, you know, from the world of French zoology. Well, it could have been like the David. It's like the David Attenborough, isn't it? It's like the quiche David Attenborough you could have. But or... it gives you a kind of snapshot of the kinds of people that are in this dining room. He had he he named a dish Sarah Potatoes after uh, the stage actress Sarah Bernhardt, who obviously was incredibly successful and famous at the time. Um, and there's a there's a dish Salad à la Dumas after Alexander Dumas. Oh, that's very uh, good. I'd have a problem with being called potatoes. I don't think that's particularly well, glamorous. Maybe that's all she ate. She was an actress. I mean, I don't know how many actresses you'd know, but they're quite, think, you know. Think of the cards. can be, let's say. Let's not generalise. <laughs> but they can be a bit picky about food. <laughs> that's all I'd say. <laughs> Having done a TV show for 10 years, trying to get them to express their food, heaven and hell. Some of them don't <laughs> like anything. <laughs> potatoes. All, all it is is just a white boiled well, potato. There you go. Potato, Sarah Potato. <laughs> These are brilliant. Um, so a, there's, okay, I'll keep going for a bit until we. Yeah. Until we there's chicken fillet Sadi Cano. Now, if that was named after Marie Francoise Sadi Cano, who was a French statesman and later served as president of France. I didn't know that, um, but was unfortunately assassinated in 1894. Oh. I, I think the dish remained, though, uh, as was Van Hoffer's way. Peach pudding a la Cleveland, named after President Grover Cleveland, who, who would have been one of the presidents of the USA. I don't know which one. Uh, we need an American listener to tell us that. And then this is what I love, you see, because... You know, you, you always have an image of Charles Dickens living like Oliver Twist, don't you? In, in my head, we really, yeah. like, everything he wrote seemed to be set in the poverty of England of the sort of 1890s or whatever. Yep. But obviously, he was a superstar because <laughs> no, he was he famous in his own lifetime. So he's got not one, he's got two because he was always in America because he was so fabulously popular and selling lots of books. He would be on a book tour somewhere, Charles Dickens. Um, so he had veal pie a la Dickens and beet fritters a la Dickens. I'm not sure about the beet fritters, but That's there you go. Fab- because you're right, yeah. you never. I never weirdly think of Charles Dickens almost being a person. It's just he's he's an era. He's a like you said. He's a thought. He's a grubby Victorian back alley. He's not. He's not a sort of Tom Clancy esque author pottering around signing books. But clearly, he obviously was. And no, he was at the time, and it's quite. And yeah, I mean, he sold a lot of books in his lifetime. Quite early on, too. I don't know what the order of the books were, but by about book two, he was already a whatever fabulously wealthy man you know so beet fritters as well is quite daring i like the idea of beet fritters I, yeah I don't, sounds, sounds good bit, that purple yeah, fritters yeah, yeah. right they'd be purple yeah i mean i suppose my all all-time favorite was a very simple uh dessert named after uh 
Marshall Ney. Now I think it was just called Exile and Ney, but I'm gonna gonna I'm gonna check. That I hope so. In a second. That's a good. That's um, a good but I don't know if it was. I've just because uh, let me let me just. Uh, sorry, Exile and Because Marshall Ney, as you will know, I can talk on while I while I do this. Um, was one of Napoleon's great generals. Right? You're shattering you know the illusion that you know all this off the top of your head as well now. I mean, I've, I've... Well, yeah, my head is just sat in front of a computer. That's the, uh, my head is sat in front of a television. I'm impressed with the level of research you've uh, done on this. This is really good. This is much well, more than we normally do. Charles Ranhoff, is, you know, he's, he's a... Um, well, you love this a bit as well. Of a, well, I do love this sort of stuff. You but, love this. But Marshal Ney was uh, one of Napoleon's right-hand men. Um, yeah, in the Battle of Waterloo. Wasn't Ney the mm. one that led the... Wasn't he the cavalry general that went berserk and just charged and just lost well, the entire the cavalry? Story. He is often blamed for the fall of Napoleon at Waterloo. He led yeah. a very, very brave but foolhardy charge into the artillery section of, Brit- of, of Wellington's army and completely floundered and got p- battered. Yeah, <laughs> he got Clearly, to, yeah. he managed to survive, I think. To be because, fair, though, uh, Napoleon did tell him to keep going. So he told him to just go over and over again. So they, Ney and his, and his cavalry just kept slogging up the hill just getting battered over and over again. And they, I mean, and also, there was a glamour and a glory to the cavalry, what they looked like. They were the absolute pinnacle of the sort of coolest in terms of the military, especially from the Napoleonic armies. These guys would look fantastic. And then there's this awful image of them just charging towards the, well, you know, on soggy ground towards these giant cannons. And it's sort of just this clashing of cultures of things. So, yes, he was... Um, I think that's who Marshal Ney was. Um, yeah, but- well, that's exactly who he was. Because prior to that, just to give you a sense of this man, uh, when Napoleon was exiled down to the first island, which is in Elba, is that right? St. Helena um, and Elba. I'm never sure which one yeah. is which. Yeah, so the one on the south coast of, of France, just off, off, off Cannes and Marseille, down there, the island there. And he marched up to... He, he, he took 100 days to take, retake Paris when he escaped from that island. Marshal Ney had been um, back under the sort of employ of the, of the king, Louis XVI, right? Uh, and basically had pledged his allegiance to Louis and said that he was going to bring him Napoleon's head on a spike, <laughs> right? So when Napoleon escaped and started heading off... Um, he, he went to meet him. He went to break his army, went to meet him. And Napoleon um, sent him a message saying, I shall meet you like I did the night after Austerlitz or something, you know, a kind of coded message. And basically, Ney just caved in, read, you know, forgot about all about his allegiance to the king, sided back with Napoleon, joined the <laughs> march back up to Paris. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's the way to so do it. So that's how it, it works. So, so his his life is embodied now. It is the dessert is simply called Marshal Ney. There is no name uh, beyond his own, and it is a moulded tier of meringue shells filled with vanilla custard and marzipan. That is how the great uh, Napoleonic general is uh, immortalised by Charles Ranhofer. That's um, all right. As far as immortality goes, a meringue's not a bad way to be remembered. I wouldn't mind that. That's quite. But obviously, it shows you that it wasn't just people that would have come to a dining room, right? So he's leaning into historical figures to create things on the menu that catch people's eye because Marshal Ney was was executed I think in December of 1815 after being captured at Waterloo mm, so he yeah. wasn't around for He's long for Ranhoffer's for New York extravaganza but clearly you know he was trying to tell stories a little bit in the dining room which is something you know we talked a lot about on this podcast with Heston and others but you know it's it's wonderful when you see people from sort of you know centuries ago trying to do the same thing you know and obviously these dishes 
you know, you won't see, I mean, you might see them on some menus across the world. You probably won't because they're probably a bit old-fashioned in a way, but you might see elements of them. But you, you, you see the spirit of them in, in many menus, you know, across the world. And this idea that, you know, you can, you can celebrate a person through food and then that food becomes iconic because the person is iconic and the two things remain in people's consciousness forever and ever and ever more. You know, it's, it's, you know there's lots of dishes, you know, that have that kind of um, connection with somebody real. You know, and and whether you know anything about the person or just like the dessert or or know everything about the person, so therefore you you have an opinion about it. It doesn't really matter, but you you know, it, it's it's just been an interesting connection since restaurants began, I guess. And Charles Randhoffer was a was a master at this, and obviously it's it's brilliant marketing, isn't it? I mean, look, we're talking about it today. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know sense. what? In terms of a, in terms of someone who, because obviously we always talk about sort of. Historic food is in a relatively a sort of rarefied way with techniques and ways they pioneered things. But the one thing that unifies all the modern day foodies that we're lucky enough to have on the show and have met over our careers is they they generally, without without exception, have charisma. They have mm. a, a, a draw to them, something that makes them transcend the kitchen and becoming the exec chefs, the restaurant owners, the, the, the celebrities and the personalities. And I think what I love about what you've told us about him, someone who'd never heard of, is this idea of when you paint that picture of that incredible building in New York with this amazingly charismatic guy, with a sort of parade of celebrities coming through, with dishes named after him, and this just gorgeous environment, I think he seems to, for me, typify that idea of glamour and cooking and aspiration and this idea of when you go for dinner in his place, you are basically opening a little door into the world of celebrity and feeling fantastic when you do it. And mm. that's really cool. And that's a hard thing to bottle as well. Some chefs may have aspirations to do that, but you need to be the right type of character to actually pull it off and 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 be successful and authentic, like clearly he was. Mm, no, absolutely. And I think we're talking about a time when chefs, you know, there were some known chefs, but they weren't celebrities either. You know, it, nowadays we're used to seeing chefs be famous and and talk about things. So you know, to to you know, to to be able to have the power of that charisma, to be able to dominate that diner, and so much so that people remember you as much as they remember the food in the restaurant. They go there. To see. It's it's quite, it's unusual, which is why I like him. Because I, I, my, if I'm honest, I would love to have gone there at any time in its heyday. You know, it, it would have been a fabulous place just to see it in action. You know, these guys are you know are, are ringmasters, whatever. You know, or showmen. You know, in lots of ways, and they come along. You know, a fewer generation of that big personality wise to be able to do that and I'm always drawn to those guys so I, that's why I like these characters and just to finish off his his kind of career story once he kind of um retired I guess left Delmonico's gosh it would have been you know about 1879 ish then he, he he went back a little bit towards the end I think so he kind of retired in 1896 apparently um in the end so you know I had a good long stint you know at, at the restaurant um uh, he kind of he put all his thoughts and work, obviously been inspired by the Karems and, and, and others uh, at the time, and obviously Escoffier's around at this time too. So into a huge treatise of, of, of work, he called the, it's called the Epicurean, a complete treatise of analytical and practical studies on the culinary art, and it included everything you know and, and we're used to seeing these these books when mark meltonville sort of comes on and joins us from the kings of of, of england where you've got the table settings you've got a menu you've got a list of things and it was just everything it was clearly this book was just everything that he had ever had um 
around that, at the time of his career in one book. So it contained marketing ideas. Uh, it contained, obviously, food preparation, but it had bills of service, so sort of menus of just items and the cost of them, and then it would tell you how to serve them. It had details on how to do French and Russian service, how to dress in the kitchen, the kind of stuff that, you know, Karem had, had written about. And it's, it's just huge. I mean, it's, I don't know, a thousand pages or whatever, you know, and, and that was his kind of parting gift to the, to the gastronomic world because, you know, he wanted to leave his mark forever for other people to learn from him, which is also, I think, a very admirable thing and obviously means that we can look back over his words if you want to and, you know, it brings that whole world alive. You know, a lot of a lot of gastronomy is clouded in mystery. No one knows where dishes and things came from. We just piece little sketches together. We often have the dish, you know. We often have the same echo of the recipe, but no one knows where it began and who created it and, and how it was cooked in its very first iteration. So when these guys go to that effort of scribing it all down in a great big leather-bound tome. It's just very useful. It's nice, you know, because it doesn't happen. It happens a lot now. Obviously, we've got cookbooks everywhere, but, you know, books are expensive and take time. So it's, it's you know, for these guys to do it and have the, I suppose, I don't know who published his book, whether he did it himself, but to have somebody that's willing to spend what would have been quite a considerable amount of money to publish that means that he is a man worthy of, of having a book. Wow. Okay, so I think the very first rule on the hall of fame is that we both have to agree that they should go in i certainly uh think he sounds spectacular in all manner of ways looking at his picture again as you've described it i'm thinking less mill owner and much more kind of roll up roll up sort of circus <laughs> man i imagine him sort of holding a top hat as he sort of gets people through the door um so yes charles ranhofer is certainly in consideration for the hall of fame that was a fantastic description thank you james i, I love that journey through that and to our listeners out well, there I'm, if you think you should yeah, be going so in i was gonna say if they've got one i mean that's what i'm hoping this journey is i don't want it to just be a poster i've got these guys poster on my wall anyway you know i'm hoping yeah that they, it spurs people into action to 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 throw some ones that maybe we've never heard of or I've never come across or whatever. You know, I'd love to hear that. I'm always interested to hear about stories of of chefs and food that we've never come across before. Yes, uh, at Journey to Centre of Food on Instagram and Journey to the Centre of Food at gmail.com. Please send send forward your stories of your nominations for the Hall of Fame. Plus, we also want to hear from you on the most extraordinary places you've ever eaten. Tell us a story on that front as well, because um, we really want to share some of those uh, as we did last time on the podcast. We don't want it just to be about us and our things. We want to hear all about your ideas as well. Um, but so, and also, let us know what you think about Charles Ranhofer, and if you think he should be in, uh, if he if he is worthy of a place in there, and we'll get we'll get weaving on the tapestry uh, to get him as the first one up in there. But uh, yes, thank you. And James. If there's anyone who can weave who's listening <laughs> anyone out there who, who can make tapestries we're, we're in the market for a few <laughs> yeah. who would like to I don't know what the, what the verb is for, as you said for tapestrying weaving is it we decided it's weaving isn't it we'd like to weave the show can you do that like a, like a court's Court, we'll have a meringue named after us as well. Court. Yeah, the, diet, the pictures of a defendant or whatever. It would be lovely if someone did a, a tapestry of one of the episodes. <laughs> tapestry episode. <laughs> and we want someone to invent a dish and name it after the show as well. Oh, so, yeah. well, after you and I. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine what that would be? Some awful mess. Some awful mess. <laughs> like an eaten mess, but just a mess. Um, but, uh, James, thank you. That was lovely. Well, I, I, I genuinely felt like I was sort of travelling through old New York. Then, so that was that was a real pleasure. So, um, Yes, we'll, we'll close the doors in the Hall of Fame this week, but we will be returning to the Hall over the coming weeks to see who else goes in. But for this week, unfortunately, uh, we have run out of time. So, James, hope you're feeling better. 
by next week. Uh, Absolutely, it will be. I've got my lemsip and a bag, you know, sort of tissues and lots of uh, oranges. Aren't they good too? I've just got stuff. Brandy, I'm, I'm... brandy, and a spoonful of sugar. Well, that's for a little bit later. <laughs> Absolutely. Until next week. Speak to you soon. <laughs>